Well, I'm going to give you two options to get to know me. First option is you can come and live at my house for a week and listen to me tell you all about myself until the cows come home, or you can grab a thousand photographs of me and see if you can work me out from the pictures. Okay, now which is going to be best in terms of getting to know me? Clearly, if you come to my place and live with me for a week and let me tell you all about myself until the cows come home, that's going to be the best for getting to know me. might not be the best for your sanity, but it'll certainly be the best in terms of getting to know me. To get to know someone, we need to have their words, don't we? Now, it's possible to tell some things about our people in terms of what they do, but we also need to have words to explain it. So, for example, you might see someone walking an old lady across the road and you might think, wow, they're really kind and generous, but you don't know why they did it. Maybe they did it because they saw someone coming down the street and they wanted to avoid them, so they found an excuse to get on the other... It's hard to tell just from actions alone. To get to know someone truly, we need to have their words. This morning we're up to Deuteronomy uh, chapter 4, which is all about God speaking to make himself known. Uh, what Meredith just read for us, Moses recounts the time that God spoke to Israel from Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, and by his word, by his voice, he revealed himself. But as we uh, said last week, it's uh, Jesus that makes sense of the Old Testament. So before we look at Deuteronomy 4, in order to understand what we read there, we're going to first see how Jesus makes sense of it. So please, in your Bible, turn with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. So keep a finger, a thumb, a bit of paper, a bulletin or something in uh, Deuteronomy 4. But for now, turn to John 1. The very opening verses, first chapter of John's Gospel where we see God reveals himself by his word, and that word is Christ, who is God himself. So John chapter 1, and the very first verse. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God. In the beginning, John here describes Jesus as the Word of God, the Word that was with God in the beginning, the Word that was God. And so it's no surprise that it is Christ, the Word of God, who makes God known, because you know people by their Word. Skip down to verse 14. Verse 14, the Word became flesh, that's Jesus, and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. This word of God became flesh. The word that was with God, the word that was God in flesh came from the Father to make the Father known. Verse 18. No one has ever seen God, verse 18, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. God, the one and only, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Word of God in flesh, has made the Father known by the Word of God, become flesh. So now as we turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 4, which is all about God making himself known by his Word, we now know that what we're really looking at is an anticipation of the Word of God becoming flesh. For us to know God, we go no further than the Lord Jesus. Uh, By him, we know the Father. We're not to change Jesus. We're not to go looking somewhere else to try and find out who God is. 
we just go straight to Jesus because he is the word of God. If we fiddle with Jesus, the word of God, well, all we're going to do is fiddle with who God is and end up with no God at all. So Deuteronomy 4, uh, just a very quick note about the way that Deuteronomy works as a, as a, a whole book. It's, uh, remember, Israel, second generation, about to head into the promised land. Uh, and Deuteronomy is uh, Moses speaking to that second generation before they go in. It's actually, uh, Moses speaks to them three times. And Deuteronomy is a collection of those three speeches. The first speech is from Deuteronomy 1 to 4. The second sermon of Moses is a really long one. It's from chapter 5 through to chapter 26. And then Moses speaks a third time, basically, from chapter 27 through to the end of the book. This morning, Deuteronomy 4, we're at the climax of Moses' first sermon. Chapter 1, remember last week? He's reminding Israel of the mistakes of their fathers. Chapters 2 and 3, Moses reminds uh, Israel of that God, after that generation had died out, he has brought them safely to where they are now. He's already started defeating the nations, so he's going to get them into the promised land. So chapter 4, having cleared all the ground, Moses now hits a climax, and he wants Israel to know that they truly know God because he has spoken to them, and so they are to worship him alone. So Deuteronomy 4, and we'll pick it up in verse 9. Israel knew God because he had spoken to him. Chapter 4, verse 9. Only be careful... And watch yourselves closely so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen or let them slip from your heart as long as you live. Teach them to your children and to their children after them. Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb when he said to me, Assemble the people before me to hear my words so that they may learn to revere me as long as they live in the land and may teach them to their children. You came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while it blazed with fire to the very heavens with black clouds and deep darkness. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the fire. You heard the sound of words but saw no form. There was only a voice. Israel didn't know God because they'd seen him. There was no form of God. It was just a voice. Of the five senses that we have, Israel only used one in order to know God. They didn't see God. They didn't smell God. They didn't taste God. They didn't touch God. They only heard God. They only heard him. It's by his uh, voice that they knew him. And this is so important. Moses says it again in verse 15. Look at verse 15. You saw no form of any kind the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the fire. Now, why is Moses harping on about the fact that there was only a voice, there was no form, they only heard? Why is this so important? It's because this is how God makes himself known. You can't know God any other way. As soon as you go for some form of God, say an idol, you fall short of who God is. An idol, a form of God, will distort who God is. At the very best, a form of God, an idol of God, will be at best a pathetic representation of who God is. Any form, any idol of God will lower our appreciation of God. It will lower our understanding of God. God makes himself known. He doesn't need our help. 
and he makes himself known by his word. So no forms of God, no images of God for Israel, no idolatry. Verse 15 again. You saw no form of any kind the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the fire. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully so that you do not become corrupt and make for yourselves an idol, an image of any shape, whether formed like a man or a woman, or like any animal on earth, or any bird that flies in the air, or like any creature that moves along the ground, or any fish in the waters below. See, they're not to try and make something up to represent God. That's not how you will know God if you carve something like a fish or a man or a woman. or That's not how you're going to know God. You know God because he has spoken to you and revealed himself to you. Uh, skip down to verse 23. 23, Moses says the same thing again. Be careful, he says, verse 23. Be careful not to forget the covenant of the Lord your God that he made with you. Do not make for yourselves an idol in the form of anything the Lord your God has forbidden. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire a jealous God. Idolatry is stupid. It is foolish. For at least two reasons. One, there is only one God. So to make something else and say, that's my God, is just ridiculous, as if carving something out of wood is, suddenly becomes a God. Second reason, though, more importantly here, in terms of Deuteronomy 4, even if I make an idol to represent the true God as he's spoken to me and revealed himself to me. If I make up an idol, my idol will be, at best, a pathetic, blasphemous representation of God. It will not tell me or show me the majesty of God or the holiness of God or the mercy, the wrath, the justice, the love, the compassion. An idol will always fall pathetically and blasphemously short of who God is. And so we don't look to an idol to find out who God is. We listen for God to reveal himself. He has spoken, and so we know who he is. But we now know, come Jesus, that that word of God that we know God by is none other than Jesus himself. Deuteronomy 4 makes sense in that it's the Lord Jesus who is the word of God become flesh, that word that was with God in the beginning, and who is God. And so you and I, we're to have no idols, no forms of God. And look, we're not, I imagine, not likely to suddenly carve out a bit of wood, go home and pretend, oh, this is my God. We're not likely to do that, but we're not to go looking for knowledge of God. Okay, Israel wasn't to do it in idols, but they weren't to do it anywhere. We're not to go looking for knowledge of God outside of his word. So don't go looking for revelations of who God is in a quiet forest walk. Don't think that you know God better or are learning something about him because you happen to look at a good sunset. We're not to turn created things into a means of getting to know the creator. God himself makes himself known by his word by Christ Jesus. So no forms, no idols, no idyllic creation experiences. That's not how we get to know God. It's by his voice. It's by his word, the Lord Jesus, as we meet him in God's word in Scripture. Now it's this big way, this, this fundamental way of coming to know God that's right through the Bible. That as we get to the New Testament, and it's there in the Old as well, whenever anyone 
supposedly comes up with a revelation of God or a word of God, that word must always be tested. So you hit the New Testament and you, you hear of prophets and you hear of revelations. They are always to be tested. Why? Because God's already spoken. We already have the Lord Jesus and we have his word in scripture and so any supposed new revelation must always first be tested against what God has already said. We don't need to go looking for another word of God because he's already spoken. And so our job is to listen, like the kids' song. God speaks, we listen. So we're not looking for something else more spectacular. If we're unsatisfied with what God has spoken to us in his word about the word, the Son, the Lord Jesus, if we're unsatisfied by that, we'll quickly go looking for other forms of knowledge of God and, dare say, very quickly find ourselves with a different God because God has already spoken and we just need to listen. But look back to Deuteronomy. And uh, as uh, we've looked at the few verses that we have, I'm wondering whether you've noticed something a little bit odd about how Moses has written this account. It is something very strange, I think, to our way of thinking, but it is an amazing truth that's being told to us here in Deuteronomy 4. I'm going to read again from verse 10. I want you to remember that this is the second generation of Israelites after the Exodus and Moses is speaking to them. I'm going to read from verse 10. See if you can find something odd. Okay? Chapter 4, verse 10. Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb when he said to me, Assemble the people before me to hear my words so that they may learn to revere me as long as they live in the land and may teach them to their children. You came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while it blazed with fire to the very heavens with black clouds and deep darkness. Notice something odd? Moses is talking to a people who weren't at Horeb, telling them to remember the day that they were at Horeb. But they weren't. The generation that was at Horeb, at Mount Sinai, that generation has died out. The Israelites that Moses is talking to, they weren't even alive back then. And yet he says to them in verse 11, you came near and stood at the mountain. But they didn't. It's a bit like uh, telling us to remember the day of Federation of Australia back in 1901. And come on, you were there when our constitution came into force. But you weren't. And make sure we feel the force of this. Moses says it again in the very next verse. Look at verse 12. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. But they didn't. They didn't hear it. They didn't see the mountain. And Moses says very similar things in verse 9, in verse 15, verse 35, verse 36. What are we to make of all this? What we're being shown here is something that is simply stunning. God relates by his word. God doesn't change. His word doesn't change. So when future generations remember his words, those words become God's word to them. More than that, it's by those past words that God speaks to those future generations in their present. And it's even more than that. It's that when future generations remember and believe in God's past words, it's as if they were there when God originally spoke them. So tightly does God's word 
unite himself to his people. So that second generation of Israelites, they heard God's voice at Horeb. They came near the mountain by remembering and believing in God's past words. They are caught up into that moment. Even though they weren't there, they participated in it. So it's a little like saying that we were there in 1901 at Federation of Australia. We weren't there physically, but by acknowledging those words, the constitution that was written up back then is our constitution. By acknowledging those laws back then, they become our laws. We are the people that were federated back then. But you still wouldn't say that we were there, would you? There's something more profound going on here in Deuteronomy 4. Believing in God's past words caught that second generation up into the time and place of when God originally spoke them so tightly does God's word unite himself to his people. So, for that second generation of Israelites, Horeb, Mount Sinai, was their covenant. The exodus out of Egypt, it was their exodus. Those events deeply defined every generation of Israelites. 500 years after Moses, those people were not a a nation who had a history of God miraculously saving their ancestors ancestors from me they were the people that god saved out of egypt they were the people god spoke to at home the exodus mount sinai it was for every generation of israelites and it defined who every generation of israelites were by remembering and believing in god's past word they participated in that word now this just gets amazing when we remember that god's word is jesus Because this means that when we remember and believe in that word, in Jesus, we somehow participate in Jesus. That we were there with the Lord Jesus, the word of God. And this is precisely what Paul says to us in Romans chapter 6. So turn with me there please. Romans chapter 6, verse 3. And just as the Israelites, by believing in God's word at Horeb, they participated in Horeb, as we believe in Christ, we participate in Christ. So Romans chapter 6, verse 3. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? Now, Baptised into Christ Jesus, if that's you, then you've been baptised into his death. Baptised, is it's a simple Greek word, it just simply means immersed. And in Romans, if you've been immersed in Christ, by being united to him, it's done by faith in the uh, book of Romans, by trusting in Jesus. And Paul here says that if you've been immersed into Christ, if you've been baptised into him, if you've been united to him by faith, you've been united with him in his death. More than that, we were also buried with him. Verse 4. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. First half of verse 4. We were therefore buried with him. There's a sense in which we were there when Christ died and was buried. Christ's death is our death. His burial is our burial. By believing in this word, in this Christ, we participate in this word. We share in Christ's death 
and burial. Keep reading, verse 5. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we'll certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him. When you believe in Christ, you're united with him in his death. Our old self was crucified with him. We were buried with him. Now, this is deeply profound, isn't it? This is a very rich union with Christ. There is no such thing as just Alan Blanche. There's no such thing as just me. I am now Alan Blanche in Christ. I died with Christ. My old self was crucified with him. I was buried with him. I've been united with him in his death and in his burial with the certainty of being united with him in his resurrection. By faith, I share, I participate in Christ as does anyone who has their faith in the Lord Jesus. And this reality defines who we are. Just as every generation of the Israelites, they were the generation of the Exodus. They were the generation of Horeb. That's defined who they are. Christians are the people of the Christ. We're the people of his death. We're the people of his burial. And not just that we believe in these things, that it happened to Jesus and we trust him for it, but that we've been united with him in his death and in his burial. His death was not just for me, But his death was my death. The death he died is the death I died. Died with Christ, buried with Christ. Our lives are hidden with Christ. By faith we are in Christ. We participate in him and what he has done. I'm the first to admit I don't really get what's going on here. This is heavy stuff. But it is a deep profound and real unity with the Lord Jesus and it goes to the very core of who we are. The best illustration I can come up with to try and help us get our heads around this unity that we have with Jesus is marriage. It's by no means a perfect illustration but hopefully it will help us out. Marriage is meant to be, in the word of God, it's meant to be such a deep union between husband and wife that if you're a husband or a wife, that's who you are. So for me... I can't think of myself apart from my wife, Catherine. I'm her husband. Everything about my life is with respect to her being my wife. I'm united to her in such a way that I am her husband. That's who I am. Being Catherine's husband is not like a full-time job. It's not a hobby. It's not an interest. It's who I am. And the two shall become one flesh. Being Catherine's husband is who I am. And being a Christian is who we are. Being Christian isn't just about certain things that we believe and hold dear. Being Christian is much more than a a way of life. Being Christian is who we are. We are in Christ. This is all very deep and profound, but what what are we to do with it? What difference does it make? Well, in Deuteronomy, from chapter 5 onwards, Moses is going to basically speak for the rest of the book and tell them that this now means that you are the people who obey God. And in Romans chapter 6, that's exactly where Paul goes. Uh, So come across to verse 10, Romans 6 verse 10. Uh, We've been united to Christ in his death. Verse 10, the death he died 
He died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. We've been united with Christ in his death, and the death he died, he died to sin, so we've died to sin. And the life he lives, he lives to God, so the life that we live, we live to God. Okay, verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. Christ died to sin, so you've, been, you've died to sin. So count yourself dead to sin. Don't, offer, don't let sin reign. Don't offer, offer your body to sin. It's not who you are. To offer yourself to sin is a fundamental denial of who you are. A New South Welshman should not go for Queensland in the state of origin. It is a fundamental denial of who they are. A Christian should not offer themselves to sin. It is a fundamental denial of who we are. We've already died to sin. So look, as we prepare to continue on in the book of Deuteronomy in the coming weeks, and it's going to speak at length about how we're to be the people who are obedient to God, we need to understand why we obey God. And it's not out of a dry, legalistic sense of duty. We obey God because of who he has made us, who we are. If we go back to the marriage illustration, I don't seek to please Catherine because I'm obligated to, though I am, and I don't seek to please Catherine out of a dry sense of legalistic duty. I seek to please Catherine because I'm her husband. That's who I am. I'm faithful to her. I love her because I'm her husband. That's who I am. And we're to be faithful to God, to love God because we're in Christ. That's who we are. We died with Christ. We were buried with Christ. We've been given new life in Christ. By faith we are in Christ. It's who we are. So don't offer yourselves to sin. We offer ourselves to God. We'll think more about that next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these truths are wonderful and yet profound and deep and it's hard to get our head around, but we thank you for the reality of participating in the Lord Jesus and in his death and in his burial and the certainty of participating, being united with him in his resurrection. Father, what wonderful truths that you have made us people in Christ to share in him and all the wonderful blessings that that brings. So, Father, thank you. And we, we pray for your help to understand who we are in the Lord Jesus, that we would not offer ourselves to sin, but that we would gladly offer ourselves to you for you are our God you are our saviour and so we pray to you in Jesus name Amen